The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. The ideal worshiper seeks personal holiness. Today I would kind of like to build on that idea as we turn to Psalm 16. And I want you to ask yourself, what motivates the ideal worshiper to pursue personal holiness? What motivates him? If someone were to come up to you tomorrow morning at work and asks you, what drives your Christian faith? What motivates you to do the things that you do? Or maybe a different way to ask is, What motivates your pursuit of Jesus when things get hard? What what drives you to stay faithful to Christ when suffering hits? Why give up all the immense pleasures this world has to offer in order to follow Jesus? Now, I think there are many ways, biblically, that we could answer that question. We're not going to cover them all this morning. But I think in Psalm 16, David provides a really big answer to some of those questions. Lord willing, the main idea we're going to see today is this. God's people are called to trust, recognize, and rejoice in the goodness of God. God's people are called to Trust, recognize, and rejoice in the goodness of God. Now, if many of us are honest, the goodness of God is something we agree with, we acknowledge, we sing about, but quite honestly, there are many times in life where we don't feel like we're experiencing it, yeah? The path of life is hard. It's filled with many great disappointments, deep heartache, many temptations, David and Israel experienced all of these things. So what motivates God's people to keep pursuing him? I think David's answer in Psalm 16 is, it's the goodness of God. It's the goodness of God. This brings us to our first point. David calls God's people to entrust yourself to a good God. Entrust yourself to a good God. Now, the psalm begins in an interesting place. David prays, verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, this is kind of lost on us in our English translation, but the name, David's using a very specific name for God here. And that's the name El, or Ael, I think, is closer to the actual way it's pronounced. But El conveys this idea of mighty one, power and strength. So David, he recognizes that self-preservation is beyond him. He needs the mighty one, and so he pleads for the mighty one to preserve him. Now, we're not explicitly told in this psalm what David is asking God to preserve him from. Now, I have an opinion on what I think he's asking God to preserve him from. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. But we simply need to acknowledge we we don't know the specific context of this psalm. But 
I don't think we need to understand the specific context in order to resonate with this prayer. Right? Like how many times on the path of life have you felt that need? Preserve me. Keep me. Guard me. Watch over me. I cannot keep myself. I cannot preserve myself. I need you, Almighty One, to preserve me. Friends, enduring faithfulness to God is impossible without the preserving grace of God. Amen? And so David, amen, you can say amen a little bit louder than that. That's all right. (laughs) So David not only prays God would preserve him, he entrusts himself to the Mighty One. For in you I take refuge. And he goes on to describe his relationship with the Lord when he says, verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So now in this verse, David uses even two more names for God. Again, we kind of miss this in our English translation. But Lord, all capital letters, that's Yahweh, the covenant name of God. But David says, Yahweh, you're actually, you're personal for me. You're my Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. That name is Adonai. Yahweh, you are my Adonai, my Lord, my master. That's the idea that's being conveyed here. So he's declaring to Yahweh, you are the mighty one in whom I take refuge and the master before whom I bow in submission. But he still goes on, I have no good apart from you. So David's not only saying, I think that the Lord is the source of all good in his life, he's also saying the Lord is my good. Now think about this, this is David, king of Israel. Full access to the greatest good, pleasure the world has to offer. And he says, I have no good apart from you. In other words, he's saying, unless the good that I experience down here is somehow, some way connected to you, unless it brings you glory, it's actually not good. I have no good apart from you. And any pleasure, any good that the world has to offer, if it's not connected to you in some way, it's actually not good. It's not good. Verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So David is now considering God's people, and he sees an example of the good that comes from the Lord in the saints that are around him. He's not alone on the path of life. Now, I don't think he's contradicting himself here, right? He just said to the Lord, I have no good apart from you. And now he's saying about the saints, all of my delight is in you. I don't think he's committing idolatry. I don't think he's 
contradicting himself. Rather, he's recognizing, I think, the good gift of other people who also find God as their ultimate source of good. And that brings him delight. That thrills him to see other people around him saying, God, I have no good apart from you. And so he rejoices. He takes delight in the saints around him. Friend, do you find joy in the people of God? Brother or sister, do you delight in the people of God around you that God loved enough to die for? Verse 4. <clears throat> David calls attention to the fact that there are others in the world. And their approach to life is markedly different. The sorrows, verse 4, of those who run after another God shall multiply. So instead of seeking Yahweh, taking refuge in Yahweh, there are others who run after another God. And the implications of chasing after these other gods are drastically different. Yahweh's people find refuge in him and find the ultimate source of good. People who chase after other gods find sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow. It multiplies. Now, in my opinion, this, verse 4, is what David is asking God to preserve him from in verse 1. I think this is it. You can disagree with me if you want. Personal opinion, all right? Because the Old Testament gives us numerous examples of Israel chasing after other gods over and over and over again. And what happens? Their sorrows are multiplied. So perhaps David recognizes this temptation is constantly there. And so he prays for God, preserve me. Preserve me. I take refuge in you. I submit to you, Adonai. Trusting that you are my ultimate source of good. We think we can find good apart from God, do we not? All of us do. We think that we can find good apart from God's ways. The world is constantly putting before us, here's a good desire, here's a good delight, here's a good pleasure. You're going to love this. We have this constantly coming at us. Is this not what we see in Adam and Eve? In the Garden of Eden? Is this not what we see in David's life himself with Bathsheba? He chased after the God of lust. He got what he wanted, and what happened? His sorrows multiplied. And so he prays, God, preserve me. I cannot preserve myself in a world full of false gods that are so appealing. Preserve me. And he rightly distances himself. He wants no part of their idolatrous acts and pursuits. He says, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out. 
I will not take their names on my lips. Why choose multiplied sorrows over the source of all good? I have found good. I want nothing else to do with the fake good that the world offers me. Preserve me. Friends, do you trust God as the source of all good? Or are you chasing after gods which will only heap sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow? Entrust yourself to a good God. Cast yourself upon him. Seek refuge in him. If you look at the life of any believer that has faithfully followed the Lord for so many years, even through great seasons of suffering, I promise you a major theme in their life will be that they entrusted themselves to the Lord. And they entrusted themselves to a good God. And they have tasted and seen that he is good. For David, he's found his ultimate good, and he wants no part of any worldly pleasure. And so he keeps seeking refuge, keeps asking for God to preserve him. He keeps entrusting himself to a good God, and that's driven more and more by the fact, point number two, he recognizes God's goodness in the present. He recognizes God's goodness in the present. Verse number five, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Now notice these, these next couple verses, there's some different language here. And this language is common if you read about Israel's conquest of Canaan, like through the book of Judges, for instance, or Joshua, for instance. You're in, this, this is very familiar language. Words like portion, lot, boundary lines, inheritance. One commentator helps us considerably here, I think, when he says our appreciation of what David says here can be deepened if we consider what land signified to the Israelite. The tribal allotment of ground constituted his standing in society. The cultivation of that land would produce his prosperity and become the foundation of his reputation. The produce and pasturage of the land constituted his livelihood, providing his food, giving a place for his family and an inheritance for his children. But what David is saying, Yahweh is this and so much more for him. Right? I don't, I don't think when David is saying this, it's like he's standing on the front porch looking out over the physical inheritance, the land that God has given him. He could be. I don't think that's what he has in mind here because notice what he says. Verse 5, the Lord is my portion, my cup. So I think rather David is standing on the front porch, so to speak, if you will. And instead of looking out over the land, he's looking up to God saying, I get you. You are my portion. While others endlessly chase idols and only heap sorrow upon themselves, David gets God. 
The Lord is my chosen portion. So David, after recognizing Adonai as his master in verse 2, he speaks to that reality again when he says, you hold my lot. So all of David's life, every detail, his lot in life is held and controlled by the Lord. And he finds that that's good. It's good. Verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Why do you have a beautiful inheritance, David? Well, because I think he's arguing here, the boundary lines of my inheritance have ultimately fallen around Yahweh. My inheritance is Yahweh. That's where my boundary lines have been drawn. It's the Lord. Believer, have you considered this lately? Your portion, your inheritance is God himself. Now I wonder, meditating on this thought, how might that change the situations that you find yourself in right now? How might that change your perspective on what you're going through? Some of you may be sitting, again, quote-unquote, on the front porch of your heart, looking out all over the territory of your life, and it's filled with heartache. It's filled with pain. It's filled with suffering. Believer, you need to hear, God is your portion. He is your inheritance. Keep Going, keep trusting, because the gentle and lowly shepherd is yours. He is with you. The mender of broken hearts is by your side. So keep going. Keep taking refuge. Trust in him to preserve you. Some of you may be stomping back and forth on the front porch of your heart in anger over the wrong that's been done to you. You look out over the territory of your life and all you see is the wrong people have done, all you see is the unsatisfied desires. We've all been there, have we not? Believer, if that's you this morning, the Lord is your portion. The Lord is your inheritance, the defender and the definer of right and wrong is yours. The righteous God, the righteous judge of the universe is your inheritance. So it's time to forgive. It's time to pursue reconciliation. Some of you may have done left the front porch a long time ago, and you're done running all over the place, trying to build your own little kingdom. Seeking God after God after God, pleasure after pleasure after pleasure, delight after delight after delight. And if that's you this morning, you need to hear the warning of verse 4. The sorrow of those who chase after other gods will be multiplied. Because there's no good to be found apart from Yahweh. 
After all, Mark 8, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can man give in return for his soul? David's not interested in gaining the world because he's found the creator of the world. And it's good. He is good. David continues recognizing the good that comes from knowing God when he says, verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. So because David entrusts himself to the Lord, part of the good that comes to him is divine counsel. Now more than likely, the counsel that David is referring to is God's law or the word that he has given to his people. And it truly is trustworthy, praiseworthy, as David recognizes that God's people have access to his divine counsel. As David studies God's word, he receives counsel, he receives wisdom. Believers, stop and consider where your life would be at right now if it was not for the word of God. If it was not for the divine counsel that you have received through the pages of of Scripture. And we already know from other Psalms how precious God's Word was to David, right? In Psalm 1, he writes that he meditates on it day and night. And it's because of this regular meditation, I think that he can say at the end of verse 7, in the night also my heart instructs me. Another commentator, very helpful here. These statements indicate that as David reflects on the Torah day and night, the Lord visits him. And God's biblical counsel corrects any wayward inclinations that he might feel. Friend, I wonder this morning, what does the dialogue of your heart sound like at night? Has anyone ever felt like they could use some divine counsel on the path of life late at night? Three of you, good. We're in, we're in good company, men. Especially late at night when your mind just doesn't seem to stop. See, so many of us long for a life that's filled with the fruit of God's Word. But listen, what happens is we don't take the time to plant the seeds of God's Word in our heart. And then we wonder, we grow frustrated when our life doesn't look like it's being formed and shaped by the Word of God. Now please don't hear me saying, just go home and start reading your Bible. Rather, hopefully what I'm trying to convey is this, I want you to hear an invitation that's connected to the goodness of God. God did not give us his word so that we can add a checkbox on the list of our religious activities. God gave us his word so that we can know him, so that we can learn about him, so that we can learn from him. Friends, this is the opportunity that he invites you and I to every single day. Recognize God's goodness to you in the Word of God that you're holding in your hands right now. 
recognize the goodness of God that he's inviting you to, to sow his word into your heart day in, day out. The goodness of God in allowing you to meditate on the word. The goodness of God in calling you to pray for him for understanding and pray for him and help in obeying his word. It's an invitation to know God. It's an invitation to life. I think we see this kind of intentional pursuit when David says, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. In other words, David is approaching life with an ever-present awareness of God. He's recognizing there is never a moment in his life that he is apart from or hidden from God. Friend, do you have any areas of your life that would look different if you were fully aware of the presence of God? I do. But for the believer, God is not only present. David says, he's at my right hand. Yahweh is at my right hand. Now, many times in Scripture, the phrase, at my right hand, is often connected to God's right hand. Speaking of that, and it's speaking of the idea of honor, a place of power and authority. But here, David is saying the Lord is at his right hand, conveying the idea that God is not only present with David, he's there to help David. He's there to defend David. He's there to give him counsel. So it's no wonder... David speaks of the security he has. He will not be shaken. I will not be shaken, he says. Why? Because Yahweh's at my right hand. Now let's be honest right now. Perhaps you're sitting there thinking, like I hear that, but I feel pretty shaken right now. Life has tossed me all over the place. But I don't think, friend, that David is talking about never feeling shaken by suffering or trials. Because this word that he uses here for shaken, it can also be translated be moved or to fall. And when we consider what he's talking about right here in this verse, he's talking about God's presence He's talking about God being at his right hand. I think what he's saying is this, I'll never be shaken from him. I'll never be shaken from him. Nothing can make me fall away from having him at my right hand. And is this not what we see all throughout Scripture? Psalm 139, David says, You hem me in, before and behind. You lay your hand on me. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? What does Paul say in Romans 8? Nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What does Jesus himself say in John 10? No one can snatch God's children out of his hand. No one. So I think what David is saying is, you can't shake me from him. 
For in God does not promise that we will never be shaken by trials. Rather, he promises we will never be shaken away from him. Nothing will separate the believer from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is good news, amen? Believer, recognize God's goodness to you in the present. These things are true no matter what you're going through right now. The problem is we lose sight of God's goodness because we, we get so drawn to everything that's going on in our life. David, I think, certainly was recognizing God's goodness and it leads him to rejoice in the goodness of God. And it's a goodness that will never end. So not only is David entrusting, he calls God's uh, people to entrust themselves, to recognize God's goodness in the present, and finally he calls God's people to rejoice in God's goodness yet to come. Rejoice in God's goodness yet to come. Verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. True meditation on the goodness of God. The outflow of that is always praise. It's always praise. It's always rejoicing. Praise of God is never absent when one meditates on Him. Friends, we need to hear this. Even as hard and as painful as life can be, the believer can genuinely experience true joy. True rejoicing, true gladness. David's not saying, one day my heart will be glad, one day my whole being will rejoice. No, he says, my heart, it is glad. My whole being is rejoicing. Why? Because we can begin to taste and see the hope of heaven even now. We can begin to taste and see the realities of verse 11 that we're going to get to in a minute. We can begin to taste and see those things even here. David also says, my flesh dwells secure. Now why can he say this? Verse 10, for, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now you need to know there's a lot of debate over verses 9 and 10. I don't think David is saying he's never going to die. I think it's safe to say the Israelites knew they were going to die. They were going to be buried. Their physical body would decay in the grave. But notice David says, you will not, what, abandon me there. Plus, he goes on to speak of eternal pleasures in verse 11. So it seems he is referring to the fact that death is not the end for the children of God. There is more to come. His soul will not be abandoned. His body will not be left to just endlessly corrupt in the grave. 
Now, Peter quotes these verses in his sermon in Acts 2, and he says that David was actually writing them about Jesus Christ. And a lot of the debate around these verses revolves around the fact, wondering, was David solely, did he solely have the Messiah in mind when he wrote these verses? If so, why did he write in the first person at the end of verse 9 and at the beginning of verse 10? Now, I, I agree, if you have an ESV study Bible, I agree with the notes in there, and they argue that if David was strictly writing with the Messiah in mind, that it would be hard to understand how this part of the psalm would really help the nation of Israel while they sang it. Plus, in those two parts that I just mentioned, David is writing in the first person. So how, how are we to think of this? Well, I think we need to start, number one, with Peter in Acts chapter 2. And he explains a little bit after he quotes these verses 9 and 10 in his sermon. You're going to see this passage behind me. He says, brothers, in Acts 2, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Well, what is this oath that Peter is talking about, that God had sworn to David? What is this oath that David knows about when he's writing? Well, I think it's the oath that God gave him that one day someone would sit on his throne and would rule forever. So according to Peter, David is prophetically writing about the promised descendant who would one day come. But I think maybe, just maybe, he also understood that based upon the work of this Holy One to come, David himself could be confident he wasn't going to be abandoned in the grave. He wasn't going to be abandoned. And so singing this song as the nation of Israel, I think, would encourage them that for God's people, their life in God's presence does not end after death. Now we, we're, we're on the other side of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. We have a completed New Testament in our hands. We can know with full confidence that the death, death and the grave don't have the final word for us. We know for a fact our body and soul will not be abandoned. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of the one David was prophetically writing about here. Verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. How good is David's God? He makes known to me the path of life. David says, he tells me where life is to be found. And that path ends in eternal presence with him. 
fullness of joy, never-ending pleasure. I love how one commentator summed it up. Imagine being in the full sun of a scorching day with no wind, sweltering in the painful heat, only to be welcomed into the breezy shade at the edge of a forest, a cool wind moving with a tall glass of ice water to meet you. The relief and satisfaction of the pleasure of ice water in the shade is just a hint of the fullness of joy that awaits those who will be raised and welcomed into the presence of God forevermore to know the pleasures at his right hand. Friends, this is fuel to keep going on the path of life. Amen? Believer, you have a good God. Keep going. Keep trusting. As the band comes... We turn into our time of response. I encourage you, keep entrusting yourself to God. Keep recognizing the goodness of God in the present. Keep rejoicing in the goodness of God yet to come. Now listen to this. You will not do this perfectly, but your Savior did. Your Savior did. And his perfection is now applied to our account. See, David, he didn't get to understand this as clearly as we do. You're going to have an opportunity to come here in just a moment. And by taking the bread and the juice, you're going to have an opportunity to remember the brutal death of our Savior so that we could access the goodness of God. We're going to invite you to come here in just a minute. But if you have not trusted in Christ, we kindly ask that you abstain from taking communion. And what I would encourage you to meditate on again is the warning in verse 4. The sorrows of those who chase after other gods will be multiplied. But Jesus invites you to turn from your sin and come and trust yourself to him. Friends, the goodness of God is not for perfect people. The goodness of God is for those who entrust themselves to a perfect Savior. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help our hearts along with David's to sing of the goodness of God. Life is hard. The road is long. Pain and suffering are real. I pray that you would equip your people to keep entrusting themselves to a good God. Keep equipping your people to recognize God's goodness in the present that you are right at their right hand, that you invite them to know you more and to learn from you in their word. And I pray that you would equip us to rejoice in your goodness that is still yet to come. There's a song we sang a while ago, Lord, we need you.
We ask that you preserve us. We take refuge in you, Almighty One. We bow before you as our Lord and Master. And we thank you that you are good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.